Good morning. Welcome. We're so glad that you are here today. Is it on? Good morning. Welcome, welcome. We're glad you're here today to close out the book of Daniel. This is exciting. Uh, the, the book of Daniel has been really fun. Yes? How many of you are having a blast reading Daniel? <laughs> right? Right? Okay. All right. Uh, let's pray and then we'll get, we'll get started. Lord Jesus, you are here and you have a very special word to say to each of us through this book of Daniel. We are grateful that you speak and that you continue to speak. Lord Jesus, be in this time, be in our conversations around our tables, and we, we know that we lift it all to you because you know, uh, we know that you are here. In your name, amen. So this morning, I was driving in to work, and I could not complete a sentence with my husband. I was, we were commuting, we commute together, he works in downtown Bellevue, so I drive him in and then come here. And uh, I, was, I was doing this, I was doing, well and then, um, uh, so I guess I'm tired. Uh, that's what I'm putting it up to. I'm tired. Um, I had one of those moments last night um, where I was at the, close to the end of a book. You, you know, you're, are, you, are you feeling me here? Close to the end of a book, and um, I had to finish it. So my, uh, my Fitbit tells me I slept two hours last night. So I have my coffee. Just letting you know. Um, so, Daniel. So, if, if I start a sentence and then just stop, then that's why, because I just my brain has just turned off for a second. It'll it'll reboot. Um, <laughs> Daniel is both a story and revelation. Okay, we saw the story in the first few chapters, chapters three through six. One and two are kind of the introduction. And we have three through six, which are a series of stories about Daniel and the exile. And then we have these revelations from chapter seven through the end of the book, are a series of visions that he has, revelations from God. Um, so text, the texts in 10 through 12, which is what we're talking about today, are quasi-prophecy. What do I mean by, mean by that? Um, Quasi-prophecy is prophecy that was given, suggested that it was given at, a, at one time, but given at a different time. And what I want you to recognize as I'm talking today is that the way that, that Kristen was treating these prophecies last week is very different than the way that I'm treating them. And that's, for, that's intentional. First of all, because that's the way um, I, I like to treat scripture, is the way I'm going to be doing it. But secondly, it's, as Kristen mentioned last week, there is a very broad spectrum of the way that people understood these prophecies. 
and the way theologians and scholars are looking at them. So you're gonna, you've, you've got Kristen's perspective, and now you're gonna get kind of the other side, okay? And that's intentional. So I want you to recognize that. Um, so we have in, in this text, the 10 through 12, um, we have similar stories that are found in 1st and 2nd Maccabees, okay, which is during the time of Antiochus IV, right, in the 2nd century BC. And um, we have some of these similar stories from this period. Um, the 1st Maccabees, though, has some very significant ideological differences from Daniel. And to the point that, that it seems like the author of 1st Maccabees was delighting, not just trying, but delighting in proving Daniel wrong. Okay, so that's how different they are. Um, the, the Qumran community, are you familiar with the, the Dead Sea Scrolls? Okay, so the Qumran community is, is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, was in this community. Um, they were Essenes, and, and as such believed that they should live apart from the rest of people, um, so that they could live out their religious faith isolated. They thought of themselves as the prophetic embodiment of the teachers and holy ones that are spoken of in Daniel. Overall, Daniel is a, intended to be an encouragement to people living in the midst of crisis. Okay? People living in the midst of crisis. So, there's nothing there for us, right? <laughs> right? We, none of us ever have any kind of crisis in our life, or everything's going smoothly, right? So this is for us, too. I want you to hear that. This is for us, too. We'll get there later as well. So let's take a look at the first verse in Daniel, which gets, sets us um, in time. So verse 10-1 summarizes chapters 10 through 12 as a whole. Okay, so he's giving, setting us up for this whole vision that we're going to have um, coming. This is, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel. I'm going to start right there. Third year of Cyrus is obviously beyond the first year of Cyrus, right? You see how that works. One and then two and then three. Um, so in 121, it talks about the first year of Cyrus. Um, and, and this is what's expected to be the end of the 70-year reign. Okay? Jeremiah talks about uh, this 70 years where we're going to be in exile and then we're going to come back, right? Um, and then we're going to restore the temple, we're going to rebuild our lives back in the land. So um, that should have happened in the first year of Cyrus. And in fact, they did come back, right? Cyrus let them come back to Israel. And we know from the book of Ezra, if you want to look it up, Ezra 3.8, the second year of Cyrus is the time when they had begun the restoration of the temple, but by Ezra 4, they had given up. So we are in a time of a lot of disillusionment and discouragement. 
okay? These people had been, for generations, had been in exile, had been looking forward to the time when they would get to come back to their land and rebuild their temple and rebuild all their cultic activity and rebuild, I, I say cultic activity, I just mean the, the rituals and stuff around uh, religion. Okay, I don't mean cults, right? Um, they wanted to do all of those things. They wanted to be able to offer sacrifices in the temple. They wanted to be able to um, have purification rites. They wanted to be able to do all of these things that they felt were, would draw them closer to God. And it all centered around the temple. And they started, but they couldn't finish. How discouraging is that? So understand that Daniel is writing at this time of great discouragement. Here's Ezra 4.24. Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So discouraging. Moving on. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until 23 weeks were over. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. Now notice that in verse 1, we're talking in the third person, right? So the revelation was given to Daniel, who was also called Belteshazzar, right? Verse 2, we shift to first person. At that time, I, Daniel, I, Daniel, he meets with this man dressed in linen. Linen was the material that the priests would use. Now, it's very clear that this is not any normal priest, right? Um, he's got, you know, burnished bronze legs and all that stuff. He would have been quite magnificent to behold. He's clearly a supernatural being. But because he is dressed in linen, and this is the way that Daniel chooses to describe him, what is it saying to his readers? It is saying that the heavenly priests are concerning themselves with the affairs of their earthly equivalents. Isn't that cool? The heavenly priests are concerning themselves with the affairs of their earthly equivalents. Moving on. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw this vision. Those who were with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. He was depressed, right? We, we saw this before in, in chapter 7 through 9, right? That, that Daniel is grieving, and he is, he is depressed. He is a very, very, very big, um, important person. He's a very powerful person um, in his own right because of his, the stances that he's taken. 
Um, but he has risen in the ranks in Babylon and has become a really, really important person. And here he is at the, the top of his power. And he's depressed. That was really, really, um, I'm, I'm using a lot of reallys here. Um, that was extremely helpful for me. A couple weeks ago, I was feeling fairly depressed. And I said to my table, I'm really depressed. And the very next day, I started my preparation for today. And it was a Wednesday. And God had me read this section. And he said to me, you know, first of all, it's okay to be depressed. Even Daniel was depressed. And secondly, then he went on. So let's move on and see what how God responds to him. Uh, then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. Face to the ground. A hand touched me and sent me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, "Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I am about to speak to you, and stand up, for I have now been sent to you." And when he said this to me. I stood up, trembling. So this man is inspiring awe, rather than thoughts of purity. So he's clearly there to um, inspire, but not to say, you know, I'm I'm here and you're not. Right? He's there to to do that. Um, Daniel is. He responds almost like he's seeing God. Almost. He falls, he's almost killed, right? But if you see God, you're, it, scripture says you're going to die, right? You cannot look upon the face of God without, um, without dying. So he's nearly killed. His companions just fled in terror. He's overcome by weakness. He's in a trance. Um, and he is slowly raised by this man. Watch how this man does it. First he, he puts him to sleep, touches him, um, and then he starts to speak to him. Then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourselves before your God, your words were heard. And I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future. For the vision concerns a time yet to come. While he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face toward the ground and was speechless. Then the one who looked like a man touched my lips. I opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I feel very weak. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone, and I can hardly breathe. That sounds like how we feel sometimes, doesn't it? My strength is gone and I can hardly breathe. So, like all ancient Near East writings, that's the time that this is all set, set is called the ancient Near East. Um, the Old Testament assumes that what is happening on earth has some kind of corollary happening in heaven. So battles on earth have a corollary battle on, in heaven. So this conflict that he's talking about here between um, this man in linen is being held by the, the leader of Persia, 
right? And being delayed. Isn't that weird? It's kind of weird. And then Michael comes, Michael, you know, the archangel, that guy. Um, he comes and helps him. So this might be a conflict that is being spoken of that's actually happening in heaven. Um, there's a, a conflict in Ezra 4, and tell me if this sounds familiar. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building the temple. They bribed officials to work against them and to frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Remember what we just read? That uh, the temple stopped being built in the second year of Cyrus until the reign of Darius. So this is, uh, in that story, this is why they stopped building the temple. They were being discouraged. They were being frustrated. They were being delayed in the building of the temple. Just as this man in linen was being delayed by the leader of Persia. Okay, do you see that? So here we're talking about um, something that's happening on earth. The Judah Israelites being um, frustrated in their attempts to rebuild the temple. And there's a reflection in heaven, and that's what Daniel um, is hearing about. So what we saw is that this message is coming down despite this conflict that's going on in heaven. This message is so important that this angel takes a break. I'm going to call it an angel, messenger of some sort, man in linen. Um, Dan was pretty specific about not calling it an angel, but because the word angel just means messenger, I'm going to go ahead and say angel. The man in linen, the messenger, has come despite that conflict that he's involved in, because this is, message is really, really important. He wants to make sure that Daniel gets this message. Again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid, you who are highly esteemed. He said it again. Isn't that cool? He said, peace, be strong now, be strong. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. That's the part that, that God gave me that released me from my depression a couple weeks ago. Is God just reaching in and saying, look, be strong. I have given you strength. Your strength comes from me, not from anything else. Amen to that? Yeah. That's pretty cool. So he said, do you know why I've come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the Prince of Persia. So he's, that's the interruption, right? And when I go, the Prince of Greece will come. But first, I will tell you what is written in the Book of Truth. No one su supports me against them except Michael, your prince. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. Okay, so we've got this man in linen and Michael fighting against the princes of uh, Persia and then Greece. There's some weird stuff in here, huh? Yeah? Okay. We'll just, we'll just acknowledge that and move on. What I want you to see is there are some parallels that are here between 
chapters 7 through 9 that we learned about last week and chapters 10 through 12. So here's the first one. Here, this one, these are the common motifs. So we have this characterization of the northern king and also some time limits that are put in here. So I put these in. I don't know if you can really see them. Um, he will speak against, in 725, he will speak against the Most High, right? And then we see that in 1136, he will um, exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. So you see that, that parallel there? There's also um, the time limits. So we have in 725, we have... Um, the holy people will be delivered into his hands for a time, time, and half a time. And we see that again in 12.7. Um, it will be for a time, time, and half a time. So those are some of the motifs that um, are, are paralleled between these two visions. There's also a parallel in Daniel's preparation for and receiving of the revelation. So in 9, um, we have him, he's fasting, he's in sackcloth and ashes. And in 10, we have him mourning for three weeks, um, eating no food, etc., etc., etc. Right? He's in mourning. And then also in 9, we have the, the messenger saying to Daniel, you are highly esteemed. And we have that also in 10. Okay, so we have um, the, the receiving of the vision is very similar. Um, also, the content of the re revelation is similar. Um, so we have in chapter 9, we have um, the end will come like a flood. And then we also see a flood, an irresistible flood, in chapter 11. Um, the army is called an irresistible flood, which will come and carry the battle as far as his fortress. We have um, that the king is going to put an end to sacrifice and offering, okay, which we know that Antiochus did. Um, and then in 11, we see that the covenant is going to be destroyed, right? The covenant is what sets up the whole system. Um, and that's going to be destroyed by the prince. And then we also have the, um, the abomination that causes desolation. Um, in, mentioned in chapter 9, also mentioned in chapter 11. So you see that there's a lot of parallels between these two visions. Um, so we can take some of what we hear in the, the earlier vision and um, understand the later vision um, through those lenses, right? We are talking about Antiochus IV, and I will get to him a little bit later. How many of you have seen The Last Kingdom? No? BBC? Yeah. Um, super fun, rated R for um, sexual content, violence, and um, language. So just be aware of that if you decide to watch it. But um, it's the story of the creation of the Kingdom of England as they fight against the uh, invaders, the Danish Vikings. 
okay? Um, my brother, who is a history scholar, especially medieval history scholar, focusing on um, the British Isles to a great extent, loves this show. So it's historically pretty, pretty good. Um, he actually recommended it to me and we were already watching it because my husband also likes this kind of stuff. Um, and and I'm, I'm not too bothered by watching him. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever noticed though that how in a movie or um, a, a TV show, you kind of know, even if you know the outcome of the, the whole thing, you don't necessarily know the outcome of particular battles, but you know that the hero is going to make it through, right? Except for Game of Thrones. That's the exception. Um, but in this, in this show, The Last Kingdom, um, we know, okay, England is still a place, right? The Danes didn't completely take it over. Um, and it's it's, the, the battles go, you know, one way or the other. The Danes come in and they destroy a village or a town, and then, you know, they get taken back by the English king and King Alfred, the whole deal. But you know that regardless of the outcome of the actual battle, that Utrecht, our hero, is going to make it, right? He's going to make it through. So this is how the prophecies of Daniel this is how we should understand them, right? Um, it's the story of the exercise of power. Okay, the power of the northern king in these, these prophecies versus the southern king and what the northern king is doing, all of this awful stuff. Um, the prophecy is pretty clear about what the outcome is going to be. We know that our hero is going to make it, right? Um, but the people in power, the northern king and the southern king, they don't necessarily recognize this outcome. So they're, they're trying things, um, and they're seeing that it doesn't always come out the way that they want it to. So there's... Um, an external conflict, there's internal dissolution, there, there's a, an eclipse by a more powerful ruler, and this, it goes on and on and on, right? This is the story actually of our world um, and the political powers of our world. Um, but it is the nature of kings not to notice. So, uh, for the king of the north will muster another army larger than the first, and after several years he will advance with a huge army fully equipped. In those times, many will rise against the king of the south. Those who are violent among your own people will rebel in fulfillment of the vision, but without success. Then the king of the north will come and build up a siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the south will be powerless to resist. Even their vast troops will not have the strength to stand. The invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in a beautiful land, that's Israel, and will have the power to destroy it. He will determine to come, to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the south. And he will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom 
but his plans will not succeed or help him. Then he will turn his attention to the coastlands and will take many of them, but a commander will put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back on him. After this, he will turn back towards the fortresses of his own country, but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. This is that cycle. You see the cycle? So he's trying to do whatever he can to, to grab power and control the land. We have in chapter 11, verses 2 through 12, is a synopsis of what is to come, and then following that um, shows some various features of what is going to happen. So we have, this is my summary. The king of the north can do what he wants. He makes an alliance with the king of the south using a marriage alliance, but that doesn't work. Okay? You know, the kings used to, like, pass along a, a daughter to another king so that they could have some friendly relations, right, between their two countries. Well, he, the king of the north is trying this. It doesn't work. So then he goes, well, that's not going to work. I'm going to go over here to the coastlands. But yet one of the, com the commanders makes sure he can't take that. So he goes back to his own land, his own land. He's not even like hanging out in the beautiful land anymore. He goes back to his own land and is seen no more. The cycle of history is proven. Okay, so Antiochus IV, also known as Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, ruled Palestine in 175 to 163 BC. And remember from last week we learned from Kristen that he came in and he like removed all of the ability to worship from the Jewish people, right? Um, so what we have here in this story is, um, in this vision, is Daniel is taking historical situations and bending them, not, not misusing them per se, but bending them to make his point, okay? We're going to get to, we're going to start talking about what is his point. So some things I want you to take away from the book of Daniel. The message itself is from divine revelation. So there's a lot in here that, um, about divine revelation. We should realize that Daniel sets himself up and the story of receiving this revelation is very, very similar to the story of Ezekiel receiving his revelation. Okay? The very, it's almost parallel story. So uh, we can assume that Daniel is saying, by, by setting it up that way, not that the events didn't happen that way, but that Daniel is telling the story in a way so to suggest that you, you believed Ezekiel, so you should believe me. Okay? You believed him, that he was divinely, um, this, that his visions were divinely revealed to him, so you should believe that my visions are also divinely revealed. So, it doesn't matter, really, if the revelations are given to 
exilic Daniel or a post-exilic Daniel? Okay, and I want you to hear me on this because this is going to sound a little weird, and because I'm not going to go into the full exegetical like history of um, how do you read Old Testament books, but exilic Daniel was when 400 years before Antiochus. Okay, and we're talking about events that happened during Antiochus's reign. So the point is that it's divinely inspired regardless of how it's set in time. Okay? So even if we have one person writing the stories, or even the same person writing the stories that's writing the, down the visions, but have heard the stories passed along as an oral tradition, um, it is still divinely inspired. Because God uses everything we have to get, right? So, I don't necessarily believe that this is a prophecy that is talking about stuff that's going to happen in 400 years. We'll get to why. Um, but it conforms to the message that God has previously given to God's people. This is from Jeremiah. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says concerning the prophets. I did not send these prophets, yet they have run with their message. I did not speak to them, yet they have prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and I would have turned them from their evil ways and from their evil deeds. So the important thing about prophecy is that it is telling God's message, not our own message, right? Um, if you have a prophet that is telling something that doesn't conform to what God has been saying throughout history, then that is a false prophecy. That's the first proof of divine revelation. And what Daniel is saying is very much in line with what um, other prophets have been saying. So if, if this is understood to be a late work, written in, in the time of Antiochus or shortly thereafter, um, the stories were would be based on oral history and the visions intended to explain to the people of Israel why Antiochus Epiphanes uh, was able to do all these horrible things that he's doing. Then his prophecy is clear in what his message is. The faithful will be rewarded. So continue to be faithful. Right? That's very clear in this message. Daniel's account is not intended to be an historical account go back to here, of Antiochus, but an interpretive, interpretative portrait of what he stood for. So these prophecies are more promise. Oh, I thought I had that in there. There we go. More promise than prediction. Do you see the difference? So a promise is God saying, I have a message for you, and the message is, I'm here. Be faithful, I'm here, even in the midst of all of this awfulness. 
right? The prediction is this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen, and then this is going to happen, right? If you read all of the apocalyptic literature, all of prophecy, with the idea of promise, it's going to change the way you read it. So I encourage you to go back and read about promise. Read it as promise, not as prediction, not as, you know, let's, let's line up all the numbers and try and figure it all out. Okay, second thing to take away, because I'm running out of time. Um, the heavenly powers are shaping the events of earthly history. Daniel teaches that God's purposes can be opposed and delayed, but not frustrated. Remember that story of, of the man and linen being held up, right? But he eventually was, was, got out of that. He wasn't held up anymore. And this is what Daniel is trying to say, is that God sometimes, his work can't be seen visibly. He can be held up, but eventually God's got this. Number three, the details of Israel's history are written, are within the control of God. God is fully in control of Israel's history, including this time. If Daniel's prophecy had indeed been written 400 years before the events they described, what does that tell us about the inevitability and free will? Would events have so closely adhered to the prophecy if there had been 400 years of people engaging in free will, making their own decisions? God can make that happen. God can foretell what's going to happen. But what does it say about the freedom that God offers to us to make choices if we say that this was written 400 years ago? What does that say? I don't like it. Of course, I'm, I'm a Baptist, so understand that. Um, but under, also understand that even Presbyterians um, who believe in predestination also believe that there is free will involved in making your day-to-day -day choices. Predestination is just about salvation. It's not about making all the right decisions, right? Um, it's not about, you know, I'm predestined to get that, that parking spot. Um, it's about, I am predestined to be part of God's kingdom, eternal life. If then Daniel's prophecy was written after the historical events they claim to interpret, what does that tell us? It tells us, and I'm quoting here, and I put it up here for you, the significance of describing what is exact is actually past history as pre-written is to declare that God is somehow in control even of the inexplicabilities of history, the successes of the godless, and the sufferings of the faithful, even at moments when evil is asserting itself in a particularly oppressive way, it is part of some pattern and purpose rather than being random and meaningless. So giving, uh, if, if this is written, it's written as a story, it's, it's the promise, right? The promise is that God is still involved. Okay. The details of Persian and Hellenistic history have no positive theological significance, by which I mean that the events are unimportant to our theology. 
God is in control. So whatever battles occur or horrors are brought down on the faithful, God wins in the end. God wins. The rest of it, though important to those of us who are suffering through it, do not frustrate the, the purposes of God. God wins. In this vision, the faithful are brought back to life to resume the life they had wrongly lost. So the destiny of the faithful and the wicked is secure. We know. We know what's going to happen. Right? The faithful will be in heaven with God, and the wicked won't. Chapter 10 speaks of these celestial figures who are embodiments of earthly institutions. Right, the man in Lynn who is a priest. And chapter 11 speaks of earthly figures who are embodiments of spiritual principles. Though Daniel does not name Antiochus as the Antichrist or Satan, he is certainly. He is like, uh, like the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14 or Gog in Ezekiel 38. He is the very embodiment of godless wickedness. The language used could not be could be used interchangeably with Antichrist and with Satan. Antiochus treated religious questions as subservient to political ones. The state was God. Stability of his empire was paramount. And this is the charge that Daniel is levying against Antiochus. That he is putting the state, the nation, above God, when in fact, it should be the opposite. God first, nation second. And for those of us in this room, what does that mean? What does that mean, God first, nation second? What does God tell us? Two things he tells us to do. Love God, love our neighbor. And then our politics. Right? Can I get some head nods? There we go. There we go. All right. Last one. The faithful are challenged to steadfastness. The faithful can know intellectually what they need to know, but the hope of Daniel is that the faithful will be steadfast in their, their actions, their behaviors, their obedience, despite the challenges they face. People are forced to make a decision which side they are on. You are challenged to decide. Oh, here, things to take away from Daniel for you. Okay, message for me is from divine revelation. God is still speaking to us through scripture, through prayer, through study, sermons, teachings, through communal worship and private worship. God is still speaking. Number two, God is an active participant in your life. Heavenly powers are shaping events of my, of my history. God is an active participant in your life. The details of his, my history are within the control of God. God will take the events of your life and use them for good. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, yeah. God will take the events of your life and use them for good, even if they are not good. Hear that? Even if they are not good. The details of my personal history have no significance except for how they point me to Jesus. My personal experiences can either point me to Jesus or point me to Satan. 
What are you going to do? The destiny of the faithful is secure. I need not fear the circumstances of my life because Jesus excuse me, has paid the price for me. I am secure. Jesus has paid the price for me. If I'm working for him, if I'm doing my thing for him, if I'm loving him, if I'm in a relationship with Jesus, that is all that matters. He's got the rest. You are challenged to decide. Whose side are you on? To go back to what Christina said the first week we were studying Daniel, we don't want our context to become our content. We want our content to shape our context. Jesus, help us to live into that. We are so grateful for the witness of Daniel that you have given us through him the promise of a future. The promise that you are with us in our present. Lord Jesus, we are grateful for that. And we lean into that even in the dark times. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.